Hey, when, when we were at Moody last week, um, Francis Chan spoke on Thursday night. And uh, if you don't know Francis Chan, you should Google on YouTube him. And just he's just a unique brother in the body. And uh, he, is, he, he is moving his family to Hong Kong in two weeks now. And so I think he, they said this was the last, last time he was speaking outside of his local church before relocating there. He's been doing some things in Myanmar and just has such a burden to take the gospel where it hasn't been before. And so, um, yeah, they'll be relocating it to Hong Kong as a central place. So Francis Chan, he's just a, um, how do you describe Francis Chan? I mean, he's, he just is a, he's radical. There's just a passion to him that, that just almost feels like angst sometimes. So he got up and be, he spent about 10 minutes talking about the burden that he feels just preaching the word, just opening God's word that, that made that burden kind of land over on me that, yeah, whenever you open the word. And so then he just kind of prayed over himself and he was praying verses from scripture of what scripture said should happen when the word gets preached. And I thought, I thought this was good. Like in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it talks to, to the elders, and it says, we ask you, brothers, um, to esteem them, yeah, to esteem us, right, but then it gets, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See, pray, God, as I speak this, would you just let that happen? Would, you know, would you let uh, people that are idle be admonished, people that are just kind of hanging in place in their relationship with Jesus or where they're serving, would you allow them to be admonished that, to stop doing that? Would you allow people that are faint-hearted, they're just worn out, would you allow them to be encouraged through the word? And those who are just weak in all kinds of different ways, would you give them the help you need? What a good thing to pray over the word, huh? So, Father, I pray that that's what you will do. I pray that you've had a sense that You've been free to do that in me as I prepared. I, I pray you do that to me even as I speak. But I pray that over the body because you know where our hearts are, where our relationship with you is, where, where we are or we aren't showing up for our assignment in the kingdom. And we want to be there. We want to be there to see the goodness of the Lord. We want to be there to spread the goodness of the Lord. So yeah, would you just speak to us this morning very personally so we know what it is you have for us to do and we are convinced that you've given us all we need to do it. So that's what we pray in Jesus' name, to his glory. Amen. So, so when, I was, when I was at Moody, the, uh, when we were out there for the conference, there, the theme was, for such a time as this. And when you hear a phrase like that, for such a theme, time as this, how many of you know where that comes from? Just curious. Okay. So, so it was spoken, it was a great word. I mean, this is a crazy time in our world and in our country. And so to know what is God speaking to you at this time. But it's out, of, it's out of a book that just several speakers kept coming around to and just some of the things they shared just really resonated with me. I thought they were a good word for, for us as a church family. And so, so this week and probably for a couple more Sundays, I want to come back to this theme and borrow some of the things that were spoken there and, and package them kind of in, on my own. So just to be in full disclosure about that, I... I've heard of a couple of pastors uh, whose people in the church found out they were getting their messages word for word online and not doing any of their own stuff. So I can't imagine that. I have too much fun studying, but it's, it's, it's just being honest and being true in the body that to say, hey, some of these 
thoughts and insights I've gotten from other speakers and, and uh, because you allowed me to, to go to that, I'm able to share some of those with you. So how many of you are familiar with the Bible, the story of the book of Esther? Just how many of you are familiar? How many of you, thanks for that. How many of you would say, yeah, I don't know that one? You know, and full disclosure, it's not like we're going to have to, I'm not going to have you make up and take a test or anything. Yeah, I'm just getting a sense of, do I, have to still, do I need to sur- summarize the story? Esther's, so she's this Jewish girl who is born uh, during a time that Israel has been taken captive and she's a refugee kind of. And so the book of Esther is kind of her story. But, but Esther is very much a book of where are you, God? You know, in this crazy time, where are you? And that resonated because I, I know some of you in, in your stories right now very much are, okay, God, where are you? I'm looking for you. I believe all these things we sing. I believe you're good. I believe you're powerful. I believe you can heal. I believe you. Where are you? Because I, I don't see any of that. The book of Esther is the book of the Bible that you never find any name for God. You won't find the word God. You won't find any one of his names there. Nobody prays in the book of Esther. There's no temple worship in the book of Esther. There's nothing that you would expect in the book of a Bible that you, that you would find in Esther. There's nothing there. And yet, even though you don't find his name, all the way through the book, you see God showing up in, in things happening that only he could do. You find his, his fingerprints are all over the place. And so I, I thought that would be good for us to kind of come back and and to step into the beginning, the beginning of that for those times or for those of you who, do, who are wrestling with, God, this is the news, this is the chapter, you know, what's going on? And, and I want to call this series kind of Invisible God, or maybe it's good to tag this on, Invisible God in a Visible Mess. You know, that where is he when things get a little bit messy and he's not showing up? I mean, you're praying and the Bible says, you know, he's calling me and I will answer all these things. Francis Chan, one of the things he, he challenged us to was to kind of get back to the faith we had when we were first saved. You know, before you read these promises in the Bible and people, people kind of explained them down. Like he, when he was first saved as a teenager, you know, he, saw, he said uh, the verse in John where Jesus says, greater things than these will you do. So he was thinking about all these things Jesus did. And, and Jesus said in the word that, listen, you're going to be able to move mountains. So he took that literally. He was, he was so excited that somewhere down the road, he was going to be able to move mountains. So he goes back to his room, and he thinks he's going to start with a pen. I'm going to try to move a pen first. That would be, if Jesus said I can move mountains, easily I can move a pen. And so he just sat praying as hard as he could, praying his brains out that the pen on his desk would move and go from there. And he talked about, okay, now I get that. I understand that. But how many of God's promises and what we expect him to do just kind of get downgraded? and get deluded and say, well, God doesn't do that anymore. And so, so in this series, we get to see a book where God just, he shows up in some pretty amazing places and some pretty amazing ways. And we see this whole theme that I want to kind of wrap around is that every story is a part of God's story. Esther, you don't find his name, but he's very much a part of that story. Your story, he's very much a part of your story. Whether you're trying to figure out whether you're going to surrender your life to him, he's part of your story, whether you see him or not, or whether you're, you're following him and you're here this morning, God, what's the next thing for me? I, yeah, I, I trust in you. I'm experiencing goodness. What's next? He's part of that story. He's part of, he's part of every story. 
every chapter of every story, which can be hard to, hard to figure out in the whole sense of, okay, so where are you? So, so in the book of Esther, the people, the people of Israel have disobeyed God. The God takes them into the promised land. In the book of Joshua, they, be, they spread out under David and they expand and become the kingdom that they're on their way to being. And Solomon solidifies that. And then because God had given them this, this covenant, this agreement with Moses that as long as you obey me, you get to stay in the land. But when you start to disobey me, then I'm going to take things away until I finally take you away from the land. And so the prophets are coming to the people of Israel. When you, read, when you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you're reading God trying to get the people to repent so that he can bless them in the land. And they ignore him. They just continue to ignore all the prophets. And so eventually, sure enough, he takes them out of the land up to what we now think of as Iraq. And they're refugees there for, he says, 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God works and they get the opportunity to go back to the land and start this thing over. And most, many do, but a lot of them have just gotten comfortable with life up in what has now become the Medo-Persian Empire. And so they're settled in there. And that's the book of Esther. That's where you find Esther, and that's where things begin to happen. And so I want to read the first, beginning of the first chapter of Esther. If you're not f familiar with, you know, where things are in the Bible, I always loved the person that first explained to me, you open your Bible to the middle and you're in Psalms. And then if you go to the left, you'll be in Job. And then Esther is just before Job. So you can, you can find her that way. Esther chapter 1. Or if you have a device, you kind of have an unfair advantage. But yeah. <laughs> so Esther 1. Let me read this. It says, Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of all different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. If you Google King Ahasuerus, you'll find out we also know him as Xerxes I. So he's the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire that has conquered the Babylonian Empire, that conquered the Assyrian Empire. It's just the leading world empire. You get a sense he's ruling from the 120 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That's a pretty large empire to rule over, and he's got sights on other things. But in this book, you, there's no mention of Jews yet. You don't meet Esther. It's just all about this man and all about this kingdom, and, and they're living in that kingdom. So some of these things that I see, you can, when is it hard to find God? I, I think this, 
this element of it can be hard to find God or to see God when you're outside of your comfort zone. Because if you're a good Jewish person at this time, you're comfortable back in your land. You're, you're comfortable back in the land of Israel with people that are like you and people that speak your language and in a place where you can have some significance because you're a Jewish person on Jewish soil in a Jewish kingdom. In a Jewish kingdom. And your, your comfort zone is when, when the things around you are safe and in control and, and all the structures are in place to keep you safe, like your kingdom, like your government. That's when you're safe. And when you know the routine and you know what happens and you know how to, you know how to get right with God, you go to temple, you've got the law of Moses that tells you if you do this accidentally, then this is, this is how you make that right with God. And you go to Jerusalem the certain number of times a year that you go to worship in the temple and you've just got the routine down. That's the comfort zone. When you get outside of your comfort zone, it can be hard to see God. And so, so here they are, and they're, they're in this, this setting, and they're in this zone, in this, in this place in Esther where all of that is gone. They're not in the land. They're not, in, they're not a government anymore. They're not, they don't have temple worship. They don't have sacrifices they can bring. They don't have rituals. They don't have very much at all that's familiar to them. This is all new, and it's been, for them, it's been 70-plus years because this is after the return. This is after pretty much the end of the Old Testament where we see it. These are things going on. So it's new, and God, where are you? And I understand you said you'd punish us, but we don't understand it'd be like this. I understand you work this way, but I didn't expect this. And you've taken me from everything I know and everything that I'm comfortable with, and now you've put me in something that I'm terribly uncomfortable with. So where are you? It's one of those things we really got to get our minds around is that God is not interested at all in our comfort zone. In fact, he really is committed to getting us outside of our comfort zone. I mean, you think Peter ever had in his mind, you know, someday I'd like to leave fishing and I'd like to become an evangelist. He never, ever thought that. They would, they would traction things with, God, you sure you want to do that? I remember when Jesus says at one point in the Gospels, let's go back to Jerusalem. And Thomas says to him, but God, if, Jesus, if, if we go back to Jerusalem, didn't they try to kill us the last time we went there? And he said, yeah, let's go. We're going to go anyway. And then I think it's Philip that says, yeah, let's go. If he's going to die, we might as well die with him. It's that sense of we are totally outside of our comfort zone. And not, we're just this new comfort zone that we kind of get into with Jesus, sort of, maybe. Now he's taking us outside of that. He takes Moses, who has kind of settled down to, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to shepherd. That's all I'm going to do here. He takes Moses and says, no, I need you to be the deliverer for the nation of Israel. That's kind of what he constantly does. He just constantly takes us out of what we're comfortable with and out of what we know and pushes us into something new so that we can experience him and, and experience his faithfulness. So, so you, you're used to seeing God work a certain way in your life or you're comfortable in certain situations. You're going to hold yourself back if you try to hang on to that. I'm not comfortable in large groups. That doesn't, doesn't really matter. I'm not really, I'm not comfortable with people I don't know. That doesn't matter to God. He still commands us, these whole one and others that we saw a few weeks ago. Yeah, I'm just, in these situations, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know. What, well, that, God's trying to put you in those situations so that you can know what it is the Spirit is saying to you and have that kind of experience and relationship with God. So here is every Jewish person outside of their comfort zone but able to experience what God's doing next. So 
So if you are outside of what's comfortable, outside of what's familiar, embrace that and find out what is God, God, what are you trying to do to, to me? What are you trying to do through me in this situation? Because if you protect your comfort zone, how, how you, where you feel comfortable and where you feel relaxed, you're going to miss out on what God's trying to do in your life. And we are going to miss out on what God's trying to do with your life. So when you get these promptings that just scare you or when people speak into you, you know, have you ever thought of, you need to really receive those as from the Holy Spirit. So, but it's going to be hard if you're going to latch onto that. It's going to be hard to find God in it. Another, another place, another thing that I see in the, in the passage, it can be hard to find God when you're surrounded by excess. You know, here you are, and you're just trying to make it. And some of you, some of you in our church family, that is your situations. You are just trying to make it. Maybe financially or, or maybe emotionally, you're just trying to stay sane and level in this season of your life. Or you're just trying to make it because there's so much going on in your life. You're trying to juggle and you're trying not to drop any of the balls. You're just trying to make it. And then you look around and there are people that just, their life is excess. They have plenty of whatever it is you would like. Extra time, finances, strength, you know, friends, whatever that is, they have plenty of it. This is a chapter that starts off with this incredible excess and with things that are over. You have a, a king, it says, who invites all the military leaders, the military leaders, the nobles, and the governors of all the provinces, 127 provinces. See what, it is, what it's for in verse 4? While he shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many, 180 days. That is six months of, hey, so today I want to show you this, this part of my kingdom. Today, I want to show you this great thing. Today, I want, six months, that's from now till August, I think. Isn't it two, to, two plus six, eight? Good. Yeah, that's from now to, <laughs> there's some I can handle. Yeah, that is over and over, over the top, those kind of excesses. You, then you have at the end of those 180 days, I mean, the writer makes sure you get that. You notice how he says many days. 180 days. He's trying to make sure we don't just read over that quickly. And, and when those days were completed, then he invites everyone in the, in the summer capital. That's what Susa was. It was the summer they'd go, the capital would move there. It's a little bit cooler. So everyone there gets invited to this seven-day party. So you have this, this 180 days, you know, let me show you how great I am, let you see everything that's going on. Then you have the seven-day party, and when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast la lasting seven days in the court of the, of the garden. See so this incredible over-the-top party. It tells you about the incredible decorations, the white cotton curtains. You know, if you're a guy and you read that, okay, so there's curtains. But if you're, you're getting that, if you're a designer, you know, they're white cotton and it's violet hangings. And they were fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches, okay, we've picked up the guys again. The couches are gold and silver, you know, which has got to be the frame. Every time I've read that, I thought, that would be incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> so it's got to be the frame. So just, you know, letting you into how I think, how I read scripture, yeah. But the floor on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. That's impressive. That's really decorating the place up. So you have 
you have this excessive party in this beautiful, beautifully over-the-top design. And the one instruction that's given for this party is that you don't say no to anyone when they want another drink. So did you notice that? Drinks are in golden vessels, not just one kind of glass, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So he gives you those two words to know there's a lot. It's lavished, and it's according to his bounty. It's not according, this is not B-Y-O-B. This is the king is bringing these things. The, the drinking is according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Now, one of the speakers at, at Moody was, was, saying, was saying this, and then I, I was reading and found it, that this is right about the time that the king, Ahasuerus, Xerxes I, he wants to invade Greece. Because you see where he goes? He goes from India across pretty much level to Egypt, but he wants to attack Greece. And so it's around this time, and so historians think this 180, day, 180 days, did you see the, who the lead, lead off of the guest list was? The army of Persia media. That he's brought in his army, he's brought in his generals, and he's showing them how great things are, and now he's getting them good and drunk so that he can present this attack on, on Greece and talk them into attacking Greece. And history will tell you he does attack Greece, and it becomes disastrous for him. He, you know, his army is wiped out. They try to do a naval attack, and, it's, and they're just decimated. So you have this... You're in this time of incredible excess and, and waste. And, and if you're a follower of God, you're trying to figure this out. You're struggling. This thing is so ungodly. What's going on? The, the pride and then what happens at a party like that? You're wrestling with, okay, God, where are you? How can you just allow this to keep going on? You're struggling that maybe there's so much because you're invited to this party. It's that great and small. And you're seeing all that's there, everything that's there, while you try to measure out how it is you're trying to get by. And God, where are you in that? And then you're struggling that their lives, as you see all these other people, are so, you know, fill in the blank. They're so blessed, or they're so easy, or they're so rich, or they're so problem-free. And so you're struggling with that. And God, where are you in that? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just give me a little of what you've given to them? Who doesn't struggle with that at different seasons? Some of you that, for whom health has just been an ongoing issue. Do you ever look at people who don't ever seem to struggle with health and think, God, well, you know, why don't you give me some of that? Why don't you give me a season of feeling good or, or a season where I'm not in pain or a season where I can breathe easy or a season where I don't have to worry about the bills. I know there's money there to pay them why don't you do that for me? Because if you were really in my life, then I would have some. But I'm surrounded by people that have more than they need, more than the excess. I was working on that yesterday. I thought, man, you know who we can sound like? We can sound like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Prodigal son comes home. They throw a party for him. They're so happy to find out, you know, he's not dead. He's come back to his senses. He's come back to his family. And the older, they throw the party, and the older brother hears the party music. And so he comes back and says, what's going on? And the servant says, hey, your brother is come back finally, and your dad's throwing a party for him. And the brother pitches a fit and won't go into the party, and so the father goes out and starts to beg with him, come on in. That's what he says. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answers his father, look, 
these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You ever sounded like that with God? God, you know, how, you know what I've done for you? And I'm watching what you're doing for them. Can I get a goat or something? Can I get, can I get a little something back? Because I remember hearing a, a series Tim Keller did on, uh, I, think, I don't know if it's called Prodigal God. It was, it's, an, it's an excellent book, but great. It was a great series. And he spoke about the, the, pro, the older brother and how many of us fall into that of, this is what I deserve, God, because this is what I've done for you. God just doesn't operate on that. You know, he, he just operates on, that's funny, you know, I thought you loved me. And that's why you were doing this. I didn't, think, I didn't think I owed you, you know, because the reality is you will never pay off what you owe me. <laughs> so, but we can sound like this, don't we? And then when we're wrestling with God, this is what you're doing for other people. This is, and they have excess. They have more than they need or more than they could. If you just slide that over to me, it can be easy for us to just feel like, so where are you? Because I don't see you. I don't see you. Another, another thing I see going through the, just the moment is it can be hard to find God when you're surrounded by egos. When you have people in your life who it's just about them. And it's not. We think of people with egos and we think of these people that are in your face and they're just blah, blah, blah. I'm so great. And I hope you don't have anybody like that. That's pretty rare. We do get those people in our lives who are wrapped up in themselves and it is all about them. And and you might be start talking about you, but now we're suddenly talking about them. Or, you know, people that lead, have a leading question of how are you, but it really means enough about you, let's talk about me. You know, people who are just about themselves, who are there to protect themselves and to, to kind of uh, make themselves feel, feel valued or secure or see things done their way. It might be somebody that you work with, might be somebody you work for, might be somebody you, you live with. It might be somebody in your extended family. There are people with egos that are all around us. Do you see that in the passage when it, it talks about why he does this? He gives this feast. It says in verse 4, he shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of pomp of his greatness for many days. And so he's, he's doing this just so you see how great a king I am. I want you guys to all come together and I want you to know how privileged you are to be part of the Mede-Persian uh, Mede Empire and how fortunate you are that I am your king. And that's why this is going on. And, you know, as the story goes, it, it says on, in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the, king was, uh, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, there's a phrase, huh? The, king, the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's probably an understatement. He commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcass. Do you ever wonder, you read these Bible names, how in the world did these names become normal? You know? What do you think we had a name? I don't know, I was thinking of Biztha. That sounds good. So, that's a side note, yep. They are the seven eunuchs who serve in the presence of King Hereza. So he commands them, in verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. She was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. 
At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So he is good and drunk and he's thinking, you know, so what do I do next? What can I do to show these people how great I am? I know, I've got the best looking wife in the whole kingdom. I'll have her come out and just walk the, you know, just walk the runway so everyone could see how beautiful my wife is. Every woman in this place is thinking, what an idiot. You know, which also you were going to find in a second, Queen Vashti also thought, it's all about him. It is all about him. And there, there are marriages where that takes place. It's all about him or it's all about her. And it's just, you know how that'll make me feel? You know how that'll make me look? And she kind of exploiting me, all of those things that go into that. It can be hard to find God when you are surrounded by ego. And it can just be one person in your life who is that ego person. And if they have authority over you, if it's someone at work, if it's someone that you, you know, in your circle like that, boy, they can put such pressure on you and your life can, be, can revolve around that. And so here's, where, here's the world that Esther, when we meet her next week, this is the world she is living in. This is the, the king who is, has so much authority and so much control over her life and the life of everyone else. And God, where are you in this? You're supposed to be higher than anyone. Where are you? Especially maybe you're thinking of James and what James says as a truth. That he gives grace he said, because it says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God, if you oppose the proud, why is this man still here? God, if you oppose the proud person, if you oppose the person who's, who's wrapped up in himself, why are they still in my life? You know, I'm praying, I'm praying, believing. I'm praying, believing that you can change them. I'm praying, believing you can remove them. I'm praying, believing that you can move me. All of those things are, where are you? You know, here's the truth, and it's his, the principle, I believe it. I just don't see it. It's hard to find him when that's going on. Then I've got one other in the chapel. It can be hard to, in the chapter, it can be hard to find God when you're surrounded by extremes. You have excess, you know, but you also have extremes. And, and that's what you're going to see as, as the chapter unfolds. So, so he's very drunk. Everyone there is probably very drunk. And he wants Vashti to come in and just walk so, so that all these men, because remember, she's throwing a party in verse 9. She also gave a feast for the women in the palace. So the women are having their own party. She's got to go into this room filled with drunken men and just walk the plank sort of. She's going to walk and you've got, you got refined people, you know, army, army officials and governors. But when people get drunk, they just change. I mean, you kind of lose protocol. You would never say anything about a queen, a beautiful queen walking the runway. If you are sober, you're just going to say, wow, you're right. She is beautiful. But when you're drunk, who knows what you're going to say? Or who knows what you're going to do. And, and she's got to know that. I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there for that, you know. So the king becomes enraged and his anger burns within them. So here's the extremes in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukan, 
the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. There's a couple things there that are going to be important later on in the story. But the king's, it's telling you his procedure was when he wasn't sure what to do, he got his counselors together to figure out what am I supposed to do? So in verse 15, he asked them, according to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the, ki- the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Hazarias commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. Now, it's interesting. I was chasing down that, what that word contempt means. A lot of Hebrew words are, are picture words, and it means to, to look up, you know. I've, I've seen that look a couple times over my 42 years. When you say something and you get the right, that's what this is, and that's what this official is saying. That's how all the women are going to do when their husbands tell them what to do. They're all going to be here right. So, so verse 19, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and they'll be contempt and wrath in plenty. Because remember, they're all in another part of the, uh, another part of the uh, palace having their own party. So that word is going to spread. So they were, in verse 19, if it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Medes and per- of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she is. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. You know, just as a side note, if any husband thought a king's decree was going to make him the head of his house, he was going to be sorely disappointed, you know? Don't amen that, anybody. But that's just kind of thing that, that's going on. You kind of, they put that in there so that it will set up the kind of the story where it goes from there. But it also gives you a sense, what's the environment that Esther lives in when we get to meet her? It's an extreme time. Your wife is not walking in a room of drunken men. Then she is never, ever going to walk into a room where I am. That's a little excessive. That's a little excessive. Do you ever have that as parents? When you raise, some of you are raising your children now and you're trying, to, you're trying to balance each other and help each other do that. And I know there are times with our kids I would say, okay, this is what's going to happen here. And then Cindy, you know, on a side note, would say, it's, never, it's always good to do that on the side. Can I tell you that as a parent? You never want to do that negotiating in front of, the, in front of your kids. You've got to present a common that we are together in this. So she would just say to me sometimes, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure that's what you want to do? What do you mean? I've just got to show them. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I came up with something spiritual, but I'm sure it was just I'm showing them who's boss, you know? So, you sure you want to do that? You sure you want to go that far? 
And she, you know, so many times, Cindy's just got good wisdom. I've learned that over 42 years. You're right, what should we do? Okay, now how should we do that so that I still look like I'm in charge? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know how that goes? Yeah. I remember, it's so dumb, early on in my marriage, you know, and Cindy's always been hugely supportive, but I thought, you know, I ought to just make sure that she's submissive. So I told her, you know, I made a decision that I knew she would disagree with and that I really knew was dumb, but I needed to know him, you know, I'm the head of this house, right? <laughs> so, that was also one of my really dumb moves along the way. Don't, one of those, don't try this at home. <laughs> but that's kind of what this moment is for Esther. It's just, you've got a man with all authority who can make a law, and they're making the point that's going to become late, important later in the story, that when the Medes and the Persians made a law, you couldn't change that law. It's, the, it's their law that puts Daniel in the lion's den, remember? And the king couldn't change the law, even though he realized he'd been tricked and tricked and had to throw Daniel in the den. So this is an irreversible law. So here's a man with absolute authority who makes a, a rule that can't be changed in a moment, in just a moment of, of what? Uh, of anger and rage, when it says in verse 12, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. That's extreme, don't you think? You're never coming in here again, ever. So she's just sent off somewhere in the harem to have a room because she's, she's still queen. She's not like she can go out and have a life. She just gets put out there. Some of you li are living in that world where the people around you, they just have you living on edge all the time because you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to tick them off. You don't know what decision they're going to make. Some of you work, and that's your supervisor, or that's your boss. I've heard some of your stories. You don't, you don't know what to do. You know, they're just volatile. They're, they're just, you know, you're anxious. It leaves you, it leaves you off balance. And, and some people do that intentionally. They are intentionally unpredictable so the people around them stay off balance which is a, a way of just maintaining control. It's a twisted way of, of staying in control, but it, but it works. So here he is. He's extreme. you got these leaders around him who come up with this idea. You know, and all of them, all of them must have been sitting there saying, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a good, that's a good one. Let's do it. Because you have, you have that. You're surrounded by extreme. And you're trying to find God in that. God, if you're the one who rules over all and you perfectly balance out, what is he, judgment and mercy, and you balance out action and patience, all of these things, you balance out your holiness and your grace. He just, God, one of the things we worship and love about him is he exists in total balance, always. Where are you? Because this is what I'm living in. I don't know, I... I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when things are going to break down or I don't know when things are going to break loose. You get to the point where some, some of you have been in relationships, you're almost afraid to breathe because you don't know what that's going to bring. And God, this cannot please you. So why aren't you breaking through to do something for me in it? It can be, it can be hard to find God in, in your situations. You're looking for him, and so often it's hard to find him because we're defining how, how he's going to appear. God, I'm looking for you, and this is how you're going to reveal yourself to me. But he rarely reveals himself the way we're looking. 
Elijah's looking for God to show up in real power, and there's the earthquake, and God's not in the earthquake, and then there's the tornado, he's not in the earthquake. Then there's this really small voice, and there's God. He, he reserves the right to just show up the way that, that he wants to show up. He's always, he's always there. He's always at work, and that's one of the things that the book of Esther is going to, to show to us, that he's always there. One of the things that gets lifted out of the book of Esther is, is this point, is that you can find God even when you're not where you're supposed to be. That every Jewish person, when the king gave the decree to go back to Jerusalem, that, hey, you're now free to go back home, every Jewish person should have gone back to Jerusalem. It was back home. But they got a new comfort zone now. You know, they kind of know how life works here, and they've kind of made it work. They've been there 70 years, and so why would I want to uproot again and go back? And some of those children, you know, if you're 60 years old, you were born there, and that's home to you. And now you're going back to where your grandparents used to talk about how great it was. But you know this, you don't know that, and so you're not leaving this for that. Isn't that sometimes young people, students, and young adults, sometimes we resist God's call to missions because we know this, we don't know that. And so they stayed in what they knew and missed out on what they were supposed to experience. But God is going to show up in this book even though the Jews that are still here, they're not supposed to be there. See, that's the mercy and grace of God. That Even if you're not where you're supposed to be or even if you're not who you're supposed to be right now, even if you're living life and you know there's things in my life I shouldn't be doing. There's people in my life that shouldn't be there. You're still going to be able to find God because he shows up in Esther and he constantly will show up. He wants to break through, but you're going to be able to find him even if, if you're not where you're supposed to be. It's like this moment that I love in the book of Genesis when Jacob is running away. It says he wakes from his sleep and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. I love that verse. You are never going to wake up in a place where God is not there. Even if you're out of his will. We're talking about, you know, praying for children and grandchildren who just aren't walking with the Lord right now. He's there. I mean, they're walking away from him, but he's so persistent, he's walking with them. It's just that they don't want to, you know, they don't want to take his hand yet. So that's a comfort to, it's a comfort to us as parents and grandparents. But the reality is, this morning, even if you're not where you're supposed to be, God is there for that moment when you say, okay, Lord, I surrender. You're going to find out that he's right there. So this morning, you know, if you're visiting Cottage Hill these days, maybe God's stirring something in your heart you really don't even understand. He's trying to just bring you to a place where you find him. We've spoken, spoken the gospel this morning in, 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 the ser- in part of the singing We've, we've sung, we brought that truth that here's how we find God. We come to him and we just say, God, I am not what I'm supposed to be. I am not a person. I'm not doing things that you can receive into heaven. I'm not a life that you can come into and work. There's just too much of me that's wrong. And there's no way I can make that right except that you said Jesus Christ has died on the cross taking care of all of my wrongs so that I could be made right. And those of us that are followers of Jesus, we've just had that moment where we've made that statement to God. I'm I'm not who I need to be. You can't accept who this is. 
But if I accept what Jesus has done, then you can come in and make my life something. That's the gospel. It's that simple. So some of you, that may be your step that you need to take this morning. You will find that he's been here. He's been with you for this moment, even though you didn't see him. And others of us, we need to, we need to look at something like this and, and just evaluate, God, am I where I'm supposed to be? Have I been lacking behind you? Have I been running ahead of you? Have I been denying that, that this part of me you want to change? Have I, been, have I been putting your words on my comfort zone and not letting you push me out of it? Then you need to, you need to lay that down. And you will find him in ways you haven't experienced him before. And some of you for whom this is a season it's been hard to find God, you need to go know that he's got a book in his word that doesn't even have his name and yet he's all through it. He shows up everywhere. He's going to show up in your life. He's there. He's going to show up. That he's part of every story, isn't that? That's kind of where we started, that every story is a part of God's story. Every chapter of your journey is part of his story. He's either, you need to just keep going with him so that he can make it what it needs to be, or you need to, you need to stop so that he can, he can rewrite it to what it's supposed to be. Stop where you're writing it and just let him go from there. Father, we are so c- counting on the fact that you are in every place. We know, you know, the- theologians tell us omnipresent that you, as God, you are everywhere at once. And we praise you for that. We need to know, though, that you are here in our lives, that you are personally present and aware and that you are working in ways we can't see. I, God, I just pray that, uh, that ability to receive that faith over those in the body who are just having a hard time believing that you are in this season right now or believing that you're doing something good in this season. I pray that they'd be able to receive that. I pray for those who are trying to find you just in general, that they would believe the gospel of Jesus is coming to build a bridge and make a way for us to get to you and have you involved in our lives and that that would be a, a decision that wouldn't get put off any longer. Here we are, Lord. We pray that we'd find you and you'd find us right where we need to be, who we are, because we're allowing the Spirit to have full reign. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.